0: There's a story by Garrison Keillor where he talks about Lutheran ministers being stuck on a pontoon out on a lake and that starts to sink. And he said he makes the joke that almost all Lutheran ministers are bases. And so they couldn't cry for help properly with this, the right amount of urgency. They, help, help. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it wasn't the squeal nah. of... <laughs>
0: Welcome to This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is Becoming Catholic, a conversation about the experience of becoming Catholic as an adult. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Ryan Galliott, artist artist resident geek and co-host today. That's me. Also known as Box, <laughs> and you'll hear me slip and call him Box several times. Yeah. <laughs> from way back. If you don't know why, go back to our first show, and it's all explained there. Our guest today is Peter Pelican, son of a Reformed church minister after and actually of a long line of Reformed Church ministers. And after a short run as a musician, he followed in his father's and his grandfather's footsteps and was ordained a Protestant pastor. Did they call them pastors, Peter? They did, yep. Ten years later, he was received into the Catholic Church. Today, we're going to talk about the story of what happened between those dates and some of the the reasoning and also talk a little bit about how Catholics can get better at receiving people and the kinds of, maybe give a different perspective to cradle Catholics
2: on how mm. they, how they see people coming in. Yep. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Look forward to chatting, and uh, for those who haven't heard my name before, that is my real name, Peter Pelican. So, <laughs> it's
0: uh, fantastic. It's, it's got, it got a ring to it, Peter Pelican. It sounds like I should be going on with pick a peck of pick of peppers or well, something th- like there's that.
2: There's even children's books called Peter the Pelican, Oh, really? and uh, people were nice enough to give me copies of that when I was young. Nice. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I'm still recovering. Did
0: but. you get, oh, sorry, <laughs> as a Peter, did you get the Peter be the pumpkin eater Oh, yeah. All the time. And everyone thinks it's funny the first time, Yeah,
2: never heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it goes bad when you have a girlfriend that that breaks up with you Oh, because it's they had a wife and couldn't keep a bit. Oh, no. no. It's it's a bit of a burn, man. (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
0: Oh, when we're off to a flying start. Okay. (laughs) If you like this podcast, remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Let's get right into today's topic. Becoming Catholic, the journey into Christ. Now, first thing we should say is that it's I really don't like this word convert mm. because it assumes that you had to give up a faith, like you had to give up your previous religion in order to become a Catholic.
2: but that's not the case, is it? No, you've as a growing up Protestant, you encounter Jesus in a very real and, and powerful and personal way. Hmm. You believe the creed, you've been baptized hmm. in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water. Yes. Uh, the Catholic Church recognizes the validity of that baptism. Yes. And so it's it's not a conversion to Christ or it's not a conversion to Christianity, but it's a conversion to the, the fullness of uh, what the church teaches in the, in the Catholic Church hmm. uh, in a new way. So it's um, not so
0: much a conversion as a completion.
2: That's a good way to put it, I think. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: So yeah, as I said, I never had to throw away my Bible. I had to add a couple of books, which the Protestants had thrown away. But uh, <laughs> I never had to throw away any of the prayers that I prayed. Mm. Um, uh, you know, ninety-nine percent of what I taught as a Lutheran, I could still teach as a Catholic, and, yep. and it's just there's a lot more as a Catholic.
2: Yeah, and, mm. and that's it. I think it's 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 more. It's the more. You know, you, you take what you had as a Protestant, and then it grows and builds, and mm. and it takes on a new context. Yeah. So tell us where you started. So you, you,
0: we said reform before. What does that mean?
2: Oh, the, the reform tradition came out of uh, John Calvin in about the, the 16th century. He was a, 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 a around the same time as Martin Luther. Mm. And so, you know, Luther was reforming primarily in Germany as a German. Um, you know more about him than I. I know a uh, little. Yes. And, and Calvin w- was doing something similar in Holland. Mm. And uh, and so from Calvin, you had the the Reformed Church movement, which also had relationship to the Presbyterian Church movement. And so both my my dad and my grandfather were Dutch uh, and born in Holland. And and the movement of the Reformed Church is still quite strong in, right. in Holland. Yep. So, but
0: um, correct me if I'm wrong, but did the reform was the reform part of the uniting church gathering in? No, it wasn't okay so no. they they are Congregationalists and Methodists, Methodists and, and
2: someone else yeah I can't remember. Okay, I, I should know.
0: So the Reformed Church is still its own thing in Australia. Mm. How big is it? Like, what sort of numbers are we talking about?
2: Uh, I'd have to look again at the census, but I think from vague recollections, around ten thousand people. So right. It's quite okay. Small. So it's
0: quite yeah. small. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's quite a gig if um if you if grandfather and father and and son are, you know you you'd be quite well known as that sort of
2: um, certainly the the pelican name, particularly like 30, 40 years ago. Right. Uh, had had. You know, currency in the Reformed Church. Mm. And my grandfather's name was Peter, so... <laughs> kind of carrying on the flag, isn't Another it? Peter Pelican, yeah. That's
0: interesting. I have a couple of famous relatives in the Brethren tradition and the, the home's name for preachers way back. And my brother is actually one of the... one of the Well, he's the senior minister of one of the bigger Brethren churches in Victoria. So oh, yeah. it, I have a similar experience in that respect, but only in the Brethren. I became a Lutheran as an adult and then later Catholic. We have heard the name Calvin here in Sydney because the Anglicans in Sydney are a rare breed of Anglicans. They're not quite normal Anglicans, so to speak. There's a kind of Calvinism slash evangelicalism going on in the Sydney Anglicans. Mm -hmm. So so it's a bizarre thing. In terms of what it meant for your actual faith life, you said you had a relationship with Jesus. How did, what did that look like as growing up?
2: Um, Well, I, I mean... My own story as a child was: my dad was a minister, right? So we're going to church and we're praying around the table and we're reading scripture, scripture every day. And yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think I knew more scripture in grade three than most Catholics know <laughs> by the time they're <laughs> thirty-three. But <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's an interesting thing. Box, you're nodding, you're nodding, but you're kind of shaking uh, <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yeah, uh, I I'm friends on both camps, and then in the Catholic world, you know, friends who really know their the scripture, and, and many of us. I mean, I'm I'm not very good and very familiar with. With a lot of scripture in that way, you went through four years of a bachelor theology. Yeah, I can I can I can look at the scripture and 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 pull it apart and all that. But in terms of memorizing and right, yeah, yeah,
0: that's a different way of approaching scripture. Though it's funny that lots of Catholics sort of, if you say which Catholics think they know scriptures, they'll all sort of (laughs) gradually sink under the desk. But when you actually quiz them Mm. or or talk to them about it, they've mostly heard it in mass. It's a different kind of access to scripture. Whereas in the Protestant churches, there's often an emphasis on memorizing large Mm. slabs of Scripture.
2: And I think in the Protestant traditions, you tend to read Scripture as a block. So you you read the whole Gospel or you read the whole New Testament or you might read the whole Bible in a year. Mm. Uh, For Catholics, uh, we hear the lectionary readings, yeah. and so we hear those stories, but they're not situated in their broader context of that's the whole right. scripture. And mm-hmm. so right. you hear the story, and Protestants will go, "Oh, that's John 6 yeah. or oh, that's you know Matthew twenty six. Yeah. Uh, Catholics will know the story, but will not be able to tell you where it's that's from. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. In fact, some of them just struggle to distinguish that from other stories they've they've heard. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, it's a very strong uh, community in the Protestant church as well. Mm. It's not just the scriptures and the relationship with Christ. The Protestant parishes tend to be quite strong social units too, don't they?
2: They do, yeah. It's uh, it's something that, that I think as Catholics we can learn from a little bit is that doing life together, mm. what yeah. does it mean to be a community? Uh, and in our context, we've got an even stronger theology of that around what does it mean to be a Eucharistic community, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um
2: but, yeah, Protestant communities do that really well and it becomes a bit of a social network. It can be a little bit, you know, all-pervading. Per- yes, <laughs> insular. Yeah. But I think, you know, coming back to the conversion, that sort of the encounter with Jesus, it's, you know, the Pope's talking about this in Catholic terms in Evangelii Gaudium and I think it's Article 3. He says, I invite all of you every day to a, a renewed encounter with Jesus or if not mm-hmm. that, an openness to an encounter, something to that effect. And as a Protestant, outside of that context, you do that in a different way. So as a kid, I said to my parents, you know, well, how do you become a Christian? I want to become a Christian. You know, I want this thing that you have. And, well, you you know, you, you ask God to forgive your sins and so you repent, you say sorry, uh, you turn from your sins and then you invite Jesus into your life and into mm-hmm. your heart and you choose to follow him. Um, and I can re- quite distinctly remember that experience, you know, go, going to my bedroom that evening and mm. lying there and praying and saying, God, forgive my sins and, and Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to do your will for the rest of my life. And that sense of kind of, uh, it's an experience that you have where you can feel something going on, mm. you know, that that's more than just... Yep,
0: you're I'm engaging here. your will and you're yep. committing yourself to Christ, which is... Yep. Hmm. Catholics are not this is a whole decision for Jesus thing. It was very big in, in my brethren, yeah, bringing yeah. in the Baptists, cetera. The decision for Jesus, and they see this as the as the linchpin, if you like, the moment of conversion. Yeah, Catholics aren't opposed to a decision for Jesus. It's just that we think you make a decision every morning. Mm. You get up, and then every day and every yeah. action mm. is a decision. Mm.
2: For and and one of our challenges, I think, in in formation in our Catholic world is we do sacramental preparation. And sometimes in that preparation, there's never the call to follow. So, right. you know, Jesus would say, follow me, and people either did or they said, no, no, I've mm. got to bury my father or whatever. And yep. what sometimes in our context, we've tended to go, well, why are you doing First Communion or Confirmation? Oh, I'm in grade four. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm and going with the crowd. Yeah, and and sometimes in our preparation, there's never been that point to to, to really sort of say, well, do you want to follow Jesus? Like, mm. is this a choice that y- you are actively making or are you a passenger yep. in a rite of passage? Yep. Um, and I think that whole call to conversion can be something that informs our sacramental preparation in a, in a healthy and biblical way, yeah. uh, not in a kind of you know, a Protestant. All of a sudden, now I'm justified, and yeah. and that's done. Yeah. But as in, I've made the conscious decision that I'm gonna I'm gonna give my life to, uh, to the will of God, and yeah. and that means being living out my baptismal call. It mm, means yeah. uh, going to confession. It means going to communion. It means being confirmed, and then engaging in that mission of Christ.
0: Yeah. L- well, Luther himself. I mean, if I can if I can quote a heretic on this podcast, um, <laughs> Luther <laughs> made the, the point that every morning it is a decision for Jesus. You Mm. wake up, you make the sign of the cross. Yes, Lutherans, he did say that. You make (laughs) the sign of the cross um, and then commit yourself with the morning prayer to Christ every Mm. single morning and and every single action. So it's definitely there in the Christian tradition of this decision thing, but it's Mm. just, in a sense, I got the impression that when you have this theology in the Protestant church of making a decision for Jesus and then that's the only thing you ever need Mm. to do, Mm. that everything else is grace, it's almost as if, it assumes God took away your free will when you made the decision mm. for Him, you know, because yeah. you yeah. can still do stuff that's not great, and, yeah. and you can still do good or evil. You can still commit yourself to Christ each day or not.
2: Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the great scandals, I think, of that, the the um, the changing in theology in, in Protestant traditions in the 16th century it was around that separation of sanctification and justification. Very good. And so,
0: now we better we better spell it out for people who aren't into these big words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, justification so, is how you get saved. And sanctification is what life looks like. You know, it's becoming holy, basically. Mm, Literally, uh, God making us holy in that salvation. So when, when Protestants separated those two, they suggested that once you're saved, the rest of it's just not. You it's know, done. yeah. It's done, and there's nothing to be done. Whereas Catholics have this impression that when you begin in God's grace, but then it's a process that God is is actually like it's a it's a real thing that's happening to you. You're mm. being transformed, and in, in the Eastern tradition, divinized. You're being made mm. into yep. God. Theosis, they yeah. call it.
1: So. Yeah. Just on this and and the earlier topic that we're talking about this this sort of thing of coming to Christ and and focusing on Christ. Uh, one of the things I noticed there, I, I've known. Uh, several people who have become Catholic um, from Protestant denominations. And it it's come to the point where it's it's only Christ. They they don't see the sense of the saints mm. or, or any other kind of yep. prayers. Uh, while they do understand and believe that this notion of community, they say if you pray, only to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought up, what about praying through the saints, asking them to pray for you just like you ask someone to pray for you when you're sick? And, and they just don't accept it. Mm. So it's, yeah,
2: And part of that, I think, is it's the more that we were talking about when you become mm. Catholic is you realize that all of a sudden you're connected with this great history of the communion of the saints mm. throughout space and time. Mm. And it's part of our Catholic metaphysics where, and it's a, it's a good way to understand this while situating in, in regard to the mass, right? Yeah. When you go to mass, it's not just what's going on in that building yeah. there and then with that priest. When you come to, to the Eucharist, you were joining in the whole history of the church right back to the the Last Supper yeah. and then right forward to this Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So it's yes. across time and space and it's like, whoa, this is not just yeah. me yeah. here like, and now and this just, little no. hundred people. It, it's yeah. like right across time I'm engaging in this beautiful thing that's mm. happening between heaven and earth, and
0: when when you sing the holy holies at that moment of consecration, mm. you, you basically you have the the chorus coming out of Isaiah six when he's he's got a window into heaven and yeah. the cherubim, mm. sorry the seraphim are, are just singing the holy holy so loudly that the the walls of heaven are shaking and yeah. it's just, just this amazing moment. Not the way I warble it out. Um, but just <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, it, but it's that that concept. Yeah, uh, enables you to understand the role of the saints, right? That's right. Because because you're engaging not just in here and now and everyone who's in the room with you, but actually in the whole church across time and
1: space, it means that you can say to all the angels and saints, pray for me, right? (laughs) pray for me. I think think it gives you a really unique insight to justification and sanctification because you have this connection with people that are there. Mm. Um, And I think there's so much that can be missed Mm. without that appreciation. Mm.
0: Well, let's bring it back to the story. You were happily
2: going along as a reform minister uh, so I was never a Reformed Church minister. Uh, growing up, uh, I was involved in three different brands of Protestant church, so I'm a, I was a bit of a Protestant mongrel, uh, <laughs> and, and each one of those had splits, right? Right, yeah. which is part of my own story in Catholicism. We'll right. get to that later. So I grew up in the Reformed Church, and when I was about fourteen, my dad and half the Reformed Church decided to begin an independent. Kind of charismatic evangelical kind of church, right? Which went out on his own then and did this thing, and so you know, between fourteen and about twenty-two, I was connected with that community. Very individual, then, you know, what I mean, like yep. compared to the metaphysics of the <laughs> communion of the saints to this little community. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, there was some great moments in that community, but yeah, very isolated from tradition yeah. and from history and from the larger community in the body of Christ throughout uh, history, but. Anyway, then I I did I always felt called to be a pastor and so I went and did theology in the kind of Protestant version of seminary mm. and then, um, but it, you don't have a career projection in the same way that you do it. as a priest, right? You no. get ordained in, <laughs> you're locked in, man. You, you You're going to be a priest for life, right? Whereas in these situations, you finish your degree and then it's like, is there a position somewhere? Yeah. So the position that arose for me was in an ex-Uniting Church. So it was another independent church where a whole Uniting Church had left the Uniting Church together. (laughs) So it wasn't technically a split because the whole church left, but the whole church split from its movement. Right. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I began as a kind of an associate pastor. Uh, in that environment, and I was there for about three years, and, and then I spent six years in a, a similar kind of role as an associate pastor in a uh, Christian Outreach Centre uh, church, which is Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I was never a Reformed church, um, but, yeah, that was kind of my journey. And the, the right. thing that was frustrating there, and we'll get to this, but we, was the perpetual division and splitting and the yeah, kinds yeah. of reasons that would lead to splits.
0: Yeah. Well, as I was saying to you before we come on air, um, Catholics have – uh, a lot of Catholic, sorry, Lutherans have accused me of uh, running away from all the fights, and you're just going to a place where every all your problems are solved. And <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Catholics have our more than our fair share of idiots and and arguments, and uh, yours truly has been part of some of those. <laughs> but. Um, the difference is how we actually go about resolving them or how yeah. we go about uh, dealing with them. and At least formally. <laughs> <laughs> well, also informally because Catholics <laughs> just, we don't seem to hang our identity on the doctrine as much as as I yeah. remember doing as a Protestant. Because yeah, when I was yeah. a Protestant, yeah. Yeah. Every, because, because you have nothing else to identify you as this particular group, what you say you believe in terms of the doctrinal statements are everything. Mm. And I was so... Intensely interested in these things because that's what defined you. And also, if you're thinking about in and out from heaven, you know, am I in Mm. or out? And the doctrine is what you've decided makes you in or out. Then there's a terrible insecurity there that as soon as someone has a go at that, Mm. I'm suddenly my whole salvation's at stake. And that's more or less that that particular drive drove me to ask the questions about the Catholic Church. But once I got here, I realised actually there's a whole range of possibility of disagreement within Mm. these parameters, and it doesn't matter. Like it's, it, yeah. It's not gonna. Yeah. My salvation doesn't hang on this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, on some bits it does, but, yeah, so, but yeah. not on
2: all of it. But what was the trigger for you? Uh, it began for me, I mean, I had the typical prejudices against Catholics. The
0: ABC of Protestantism, the anything but Catholic? Yeah, a bit of that. <laughs> a bit of
2: Catholics worship Mary and you know, oh, believe yes. in purgatory and the Pope thinks he has the authority of Scripture and all, all this kind of, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with the, the typical narrative around that. And my other problem was that my only experience of Catholics up until I was about 24 uh, were just drunks in pubs. <laughs> uh, and I was talking about Jesus, oh, I'm a Catholic, mate, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do children's liturgy tomorrow. And I'd be <laughs> <laughs> saying, you should have some water. Uh, <laughs> so what I hadn't seen was a, a compelling example of someone living out their, yeah, their Catholic. That
0: explains an awful lot of children's addresses.
2: Sorry, go on. <laughs> it's the Barocca uh, sitting on the, <laughs> side. Yeah, on the side. Excuse me, children. I'm <laughs> um, so I hadn't seen a compelling example of, of a Catholic, and I, I by accident stumbled across um, Peter Kreeft, oh. uh, who's a philosopher at Boston College, and he's written a whole lot of books on Catholic mm.
0: We will put a link to Peter's work in in the show notes. So.
2: Yeah, he's an interesting cat because he also grew up Dutch Reformed um, ah. and was going to. He went to Calvin College, did his undergrad in Calvin College, and so he could speak in a language that connected with me immediately. Mm. And he just. Four strips off all my arguments. Yes, oh. yes. <laughs> with with two sentences, you yeah. know. Is it interesting you say that because
0: I joke sometimes that I speak three languages. Um, I have other languages which I teach, etc. But in terms of this argument, mm. that I speak evangelical, Lutheran, and Catholic. Mm. Now we all claim to be speaking English. They are distinct, but in fact, when mm-hmm. when a when a Lutheran says forgiveness, and a Brethren says forgiveness, and a Catholic says forgiveness, they mean totally different things. Yeah. and mm-hmm. and you have to. I mean, I've read some joint doc, documents between Lutherans and Catholics, and thought, y- yes, both are being honest, but they're not saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, <it>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that the same experience uh, you had? Absolutely, and it's
2: hard to explain that to people because in our Catholic context. People have no sense of where you've come from, or right. or, or what mm. you're, you're even what your experiences have been, mm. and vice versa. And yeah. so, I, I found a lot of the time talking to friends and family about my um, coming into the Catholic Church, trying to give them language that helps them understand my journey, because so many th- our things are red herrings for them.
0: Yeah, and al- yeah. also the. <laughs> There's so much emotion tied up in these things. Mm. Um, yeah. we, we have this illusion sometimes that everything's rational and it's all about the rational arguments. You can describe the rational arguments so they're easier to talk about, but it's almost impossible to describe um, when you've invested your whole life in something mm. and your whole family history is invested in it and all the expectations and friendships you have and contacts yeah. And your job and everything else yeah, is tied yeah. up. How much it pulls at you in ways that is not that are not rational at all. Mm.
2: Mm. And look, it's as you well know, it, it's really not an easy road. No, like yeah. not at all. It's no. it's a. I mean, it's like when you come into the church, the purging begins. Because <laughs> you, <know? laughs> yeah. you, you you've got to get so much of your previous identity stripped back. Yeah. You know, uh, and it it, it just. Um,
0: and let's talk about how you received into the church because um, my guess is that I mean you and I have both have experiences when someone became one of our mm. Protestant group and, and the welcome they got and the sort yeah, of yeah. The joyous <laughs> reception of them and when you kind of step into a Catholic mass for the first time and you think okay I've made the big plunge I'm here yeah, it's yeah. been such a huge thing and you step in and tell me about your experience yeah. of that
2: so uh, we'll, we'll, let's do that and then get back to, to <laughs> some of these, the reasons but um, yeah, when you sit down in a catholic community and you all of a sudden you're in the pews you used to be at the front so yep. you you don't have profile mm-hmm, yeah. like you once had and then you try and meet someone and they look at you weirdly like, why are you talking to me? Why are you me? talking to me? This is the mass. We don't yeah. do social no. here. Yeah, no. you, we only nod at past the piece, yeah. but don't look a second time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: There's some official welcomers at the front
2: going by. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not my job. And then you, you sort of try to get to know someone and, and you, you say, oh, you know, we've just come in for – and they're kind of like, look at you like, why, why would you do that? Mm. Mm. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah, and it's,
0: it's kind of like being at the supermarket. If someone talks to you, you're thinking, wait, is he trying to look at my credit card? Or, yeah. yeah. Is and there something, something going on for me?
2: Yeah, like, yeah, the, the differences in culture mm. are just, mm. yeah,
0: mind-blowing. And also coming out of the Mass, and you, and you, I'm kind of looking for that um, that kind of after-Mass, uh, after-church sort of community. It's hang
2: hangout. You'll have coffee yeah. and kids play. And,
0: and you come out the... And before the blessings even happened, half of them are gone. And you (laughs) you feel like, I need to check my deodorant because they're running.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Totally, yeah. Let's
0: come back to your reason. Sorry, I I took a large (laughs) sidetrack.
2: So uh, listening to Kreeft, he got under my skin because it was like, this guy's – he he was making me see the world in in a new way and making me understand faith and God and philosophy in a new way, Mm -hmm. um, which I found kind of intoxicating. I was like, there's this whole world out there I need to – Understand. Yes. So then I discovered he was Catholic, and I didn't realise he was Catholic when I first started. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was like, "What's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> it's a Catholic talking <laughs> sense. Yeah, he's a real believer. <laughs> 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 and so then I started reading some of his books. He's got a book called Catholic Christianity, which is kind of a paraphrased version of the Catechism. Right. Which I fe- I read cover to cover, and I just found it. It just was like, wow. You know, uh, it's so clearly and crisply explained the church's position on things in language that worked for me at that stage in my, um, yep. journey. And then I started, uh, of course reading, he was on about church fathers a fair bit uh, and he was also on about C.S. Lewis and I'd already got on onto Lewis a fair bit, but, mm-hmm. and, and then Scott Hahn, you know, so I started reading Scott Hahn and, and then I started reading some of the church fathers and then Benedict's series on Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. which are just outstanding. You know, that, like, uh,
0: worldwide, I think, for yeah. any kind of person who thinks about Jesus Christ, Benedict's work on Jesus Christ is, a, is, I would, see, it's not even, myst- it's mystical, but it's also scholarly mm. and it's just profound. So
2: precise. And it's too. accessible to everyone.
0: Yeah. It's just really simple stuff yeah, too. Yeah.
2: They're excellent books. And sometimes, um, you know, Pope Benedict, he gets a bad rap and he gets pigeonholed as a particular kind of person, mm. but... Man, read his texts and they're incredible. It's oh, amazing. So I was reading those. Um, and, and when you read church history, and I was, I was particularly interested in the development of the theology of the Eucharist and what I came to discover, because I was always uncomfortable with those texts in John 6, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my <laughs> blood, you have no life in well, you.
0: In, <laughs> in <laughs> fairness, most people listening to Jesus at the time were quite uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that <laughs> They
2: all left, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, I used to kind of avoid preaching on that passage. And in the, the, the tradition I was from, you could choose the the, the scriptures. You didn't have a lectionary to right. force you to, yep. to to preach. So, And you realize that this idea that the Eucharist is not literally Christ um, only really emerged and became popular in the 16th century. Right. And you read the church fathers and they're all really clear about it. You read scripture. Yep. It's in John 6. Jesus mm. says, this is my body. It's not, this is like my body. Yep. And mm. then you read 1 Corinthians and St. Paul is saying, you know, unless you discern the body of blood of Christ... Mm and you start rereading scripture in this new lens and you're like yeah how i, I can't yeah. stay where where i was in terms mm-hmm. of what i thought about that and that becomes particularly confronting when you're a pastor because i i remember that distinct moment in front of my, my church you know leading communion breaking bread the words of consecration and just having that realization that i don't believe the same things anymore that my mm-hmm. community does and i don't know that i can be authentic yeah. in this space anymore yeah. And of course, once you get to that point, it raises the question of of authority. Who who can consecrate? Yes. Mm. How, how does the bread become? Because Christ? if it's real,
0: if it's not yeah. just bread and it's real, something it's not something that everyone can do. It only yeah. no. because yeah. it can't be done by a human. Mm. It can only be done by divine power, and that that power is quite specifically given. Yep.
2: Yeah. And, and that question of authority kind of tied into all my other beefs of, you know, churches splitting and, and guys splitting churches because they disagreed on baptism or whether mm. or not there should be a drum kit. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Liturgy wars, right? <laughs> uh, and the difference is in the Catholic Church, the, lit, the, the, the 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 either side of the liturgy wars, they throw rocks at each other, but they're still in the Catholic Church, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and in fact, so in some respects, the liturgists in the Catholic
0: Church, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, are less reasonable than the Protestants. I <laughs> 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 and they go harder, and they actually, I mean, the liturgy wars are real. Yeah. As we mentioned before, the difference is, is how we actually sort these things out. Yeah. And also, Catholics take the long view.
2: Yeah.
0: Like, Catholics think it, look at something for a hundred years and then have another look and go, yeah, yeah. how's it worked out? Well, it didn't yeah, work yeah. out. So let's not do that again.
2: <laughs> and one of our great strengths in the Catholic Church is our diversity. You know, right. that we have the traditional Latin Mass on one hand, and we've got charismatic expressions of, mm. of, encounter with God that some are liturgical and some are less liturgical, mm-hmm. but they're all part of one baptism. And, and right. one, whereas in the Protestant church, if you were doing the the traditional Latin mass, that would be a different denomination. Right. And yeah. there would be a split over yeah. that very yep. thing. And and then there'd be a split for people who had communion on the tongue and people who had it yep. uh, on the hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's the sort of vision that was going on and it, in, in the churches I'd been uh, grown up in and, what frustrated me was, well, who can authoritatively interpret Scripture? Mm. Because this mm. idea that Scripture has authority, and you can read it and be inspired by the Spirit to interpret it, mm. and then you know you read it, you're inspired by the Spirit, and you say it, but it means this, and yep. I do the same thing. We've got the same methodology, we come up with two different things. Yep. Something's wrong. And right? we
0: have to acknowledge that both of us have goodwill. Yep. And we're genuinely trying to follow Jesus. But that we may be influenced by our own backgrounds yeah. or what we want to be the case or something like that. Yeah. Um but the the trouble is is that who decides and, and how do you know? Because these yeah. things matter. They're not just yeah. try things. Unlike the drum kit, mm. uh where did Jesus is not going to be standing at the pearly gates, going, "No, you, you, the drums were out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, was, that was too far." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not about that, but some of the other stuff that mattered. Like mm. uh, my my moment. I mean, a lot of things led up to it, but was um, the distinct two moments I remember in one week were when I sat beside a bed of a lady who was dying, mm. and she died later that day. And she asked me, "Am I going to heaven?" And I gave her the Lutheran answer. And she said, "There was a there was a Mormon just in here," and he said. I'm not going to heaven. And I said, well, he's a Mormon. (laughs) And she said, well, he kind of said the same thing about you. In other words, how how come you're right and he's not? And you can't just say he's one of them and therefore he's wrong Mm. unless you're claiming to have absolute authority. And I realized not only did I not have an adequate answer for her, firstly, that had to make me ask, what the hell am I doing in the hospital giving people answers when I don't yeah. seem to have one? Yeah. And the second thing is, is that I don't have an answer for me, mm. and that this stuff really matters. Oh, and mm. if, if you don't have that authority, and I had a similar moment to you, I held up the, the um, Eucharistic host and said, this is the body of Christ. Lutherans believe it's mm. kind of a pseudo-presence there.
2: Consubstantiation.
0: Except they would reject that because they don't like the philosophy of it.
2: <laughs> <So that's, laughs> no philosophy.
0: It's just there, all right? Yeah. Um, but I held it up and, and said, this is the body of Christ, and I remember looking at it saying to myself in my own head, no, it isn't. Mm. Not because I don't believe it's possible, but because I don't have the authority. Mm. And then from that point on, the exact thing you said about integrity, about yeah. mm. authenticity, how can you continue with that sort of thing. Yep. And uh, I mean, I wish, I wish lots of people, once they realized they didn't believe something, would go somewhere where they did believe it. Mm. But um, I certainly can't, uh, can't do that for very long. Nah. And, mm. um, and so what happened next
2: well, I think you're confronted with this idea. It, it, it's unconscious in Protestantism when you're a Protestant minister that you just do this and you interpret Scripture. Right. But you start to realize that you are taking incredible steps of spiritual authority yeah. that are, are hugely dangerous. <laughs> you know, you, you're making calls about whether someone should be baptized as an infant or yeah. as a 15-year-old. Yeah. Now, if you tell a parent, no, no, don't get your child baptized until they make a decision. That's a grace of their life yeah. mm, for fifteen yeah. years. Like in, in a so way, that,
0: whether or not you believe one way or the other, mm. the question is: if you're wrong about that,
2: that's a huge deal. Right? That's a big deal. Yeah, and so then you start to realise that I've set myself up as the authoritative interpreter, and mm. I realised. I can't be that, and I shouldn't be that, Mm. and I'm not that.
0: (laughs) So some people get around that, and some of my my, um, fellow pastors got around it by saying, "Well, I don't make the decision at all. I just let them make the decision." (laughs) Well, you're not leading at all, (laughs) starters. The second thing is, how do they know if, and where would they go to find out, and and to to discover this? You can't. The conscience by itself has never been a good arbiter of, of truth. It's not Paul enough. talks about it in the scriptures as well, in Peter. And they talk about the church being the way which guides us to understand the Christian scriptures. Mm. So.
2: so I was always very much into the whole ecumenical movement and dialogue and churches working together. And it occurred to me that this idea of unity is actually impossible without a, uh, a holy father. Right. Uh, it's like your own family. You know, the kids have yep. a big fight. I've got five children, right? You've got more. <laughs> uh, the kids are having a fight. They're going feral. Dad <laughs> comes in and says, right, stop right now. <laughs> Everyone stops. <laughs> what did you say? What did you say? <laughs> right. And you listen, right? Yes. And then as a father of your family, you make a call. Yep. Mm. Uh, and the church is that familiar, uh, you know, relationship where we have a holy father mm. who listens to the children Listens because he's synodal, mm, uh, it's yeah. part of the process, but then makes a call. And mm. as people in that community, we can go, you know what? I accept that. And sometimes, you know, the, the church can make a decision that we might not like. Mm. Yeah. But as children in that community, we yeah. accept it.
0: Children usually rebel and they usually whinge and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. but when children know that their father loves them mm. and they know that and they feel that their father's heard them. Yep. That changes the relationship a lot. You talked about being synodal um, or synodal or however you pronounce it. We're talking about being a synod, which literally is Greek words, walking together. Mm. And the, when the father's walking the life journey beside the kids and, and bringing yep. them up to the, that's now, mm. also yeah. it, there's a problem with the, the image of father there because the, the holy father himself is not some sort of all-knowing mm, um, no. figure. He goes to confession like everyone else yeah, and he's yeah. struggling along. He just happens to have a function in this family. But, mm. um, it's funny you say that because one of the big problems I had becoming Catholic was the Holy Father and the concept of his Mm. fallibility Mm. Um, and, and I probably you could talk more about this there, there's certain ideas Protestants have about Catholics mm. I think you mentioned the worship of Mary that kind of thing mm. yeah but one of them is that they say oh the Pope can't do anything wrong yeah now, yeah it's, it's the, so the
2: assumption that everything that comes out of his mouth is infallible which is
0: infallible. Yes. Yeah. not yeah. what we yeah. actually do so like. even to when, when he's prove wrong. ordering pizza <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> yes. Yes. so if the Pope orders a pineapple pizza Mark Shea is going to be really upset for <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, that's another uh, from another episode Coming back to that then, it, it, until I actually understood what infallibility meant mm. and that it's reserved for very specific yeah. exercises of authority from the Pope mm. when he gets his big hat and his big stick and he says, mm. look at everyone. I've got my big hat and my big stick. Yep. Now I'm going <laughs> to declare something to be absolutely true. And uh, yep. I think Pope John Paul only did that like four or five times, maybe even mm. less in his yeah. pontificate of 20-something years. Yep. Mm. Um, so... That, but even then, even then, I, I really struggled with it because I'd seen so many mess-ups as popes through the yeah, history yeah. that I was looking at. What about you? How did you come to come to peace with that particular angle?
2: Well, the first thing was realizing that he was actually fallible and he's human, right? Right. And so it's only when he speaks, you know, in the seat of Peter, you know, ex-cathedra, mm, I think right. is the, the term, mm-hmm. um, that it becomes infallible. And so mm. I was like, okay, well, that makes sense, you know. Uh And it was consistent with the history of the church and the development of doctrine throughout the church where if you think even of the the canonization of the New Testament, the council comes together and they have this discussion. At some point, the council makes an authoritative decision to say these are the books that we recognize as the the revelation of God. And if I'm going to trust in that process, Mm. I need also to be able to trust that process throughout history. And, And that is to say that God by the power of his spirit, continues to lead the church on a journey toward truth yeah. and protects it mm. um, so that I can trust that the authority of the church that God, that Christ himself established uh, continues to be authoritative and can bring what's true and is protected in some respects.
0: That example is a good one, actually, because the scriptures, they didn't just hang around and, you know, 300 years in and go, mm. you know, we've been going for a while. What we need is a book for this religion. You know, <laughs> and what, what have you got? If you Just bring something out of your library. We'll see what we've got. Oh, yeah, those work. That's not how it happened. Mm. Even though the final decision about the canonization was kind of made at those those initial councils, they weren't making things up. They were recognizing what had already uh, been understood by the by the people. They yep. said, literally, what are you reading in Mass? Mm. What are you reading in Mass? Everyone, yep. let's get together, write down all the books you're reading aloud in Mass as mm. as you've received as God's word. Yep. All right, well, then let's all agree all of these books um, are... What we've received as God's word. Yep. That one over there that you weirdos are reading. We're not doing that one because you're you're alone with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was pretty much the way the decision worked. So yep. it wasn't it wasn't a decision from on high. It was a recognition of authority of what had already been received as God's revelation mm. yeah. to the people.
2: Yeah, and and that's the uh, the grace of the Catholic Church's ongoing intellectual tradition as well mm. that. Mm. Uh, in Protestant churches, it can only get wider and wider and wider because it splits and it never builds. Right. Whereas in the Catholic Church, once something is in, then we can build on top of that. And that's mm. why we our, our doctrine doesn't change, but it develops. And as we continue to understand more of what is true, then we can build on that. And so you don't find documents about contraception 500 years ago but Mm. you do find Humanae Vitae at a key time where the church needed to respond to that particular crisis as it seeks out the truth on that issue and then promulgates something about it the
0: church tends to to respond to the the questions of its age Mm. and so um so often I used to read Augustine and think, oh, "Man, I wish I lived then. They really had it together." And but <laughs> I, now, when I think about what was actually happening in Augustine's time, the Vandals coming down and t- taking apart the entire Western yeah. civilization—not to mention the age of his wife. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> but the the problems of, you know he had. Uh-huh. I wonder, you know, someone looking back three hundred years from now looking back on John Paul II's writings going, man, I wish I'd lived then. Hmm. They had it together sexually. They really <laughs> knew what they were doing. <laughs> it seems yeah, as yeah. if we respond to the problems of our age. Yeah. They did actually talk about contraception in the early church. In the mm. Didache, one of the earliest yeah. documents, because it was an issue then, yeah. it just wasn't an issue you know, for, for all, all yeah. the time between. W- what about your family and friends? Coming back to the personal side of the story, yeah. it can't have been easy for your family and friends to receive that news that you were wandering off into the the God-forsaken world of Catholicism? <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, no. <laughs> uh,
2: I mean, my, my closest family, so my, my wife, uh, when we were got engaged, I was already sort of six or so years into this reading and discovering. Right. And so it became the topic of our conversations while dating right so so she already, she already had a fair, fair idea yeah. of your trajectory come out for dinner honey and let's talk about the <laughs> transubstantiation <laughs> <and laughs> it's going to be awesome <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> big per- word per- purgatory you know uh, infallibility is that reckon that'll work for your box <laughs> mm,
1: I think that's where I've been going wrong oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: let's talk about humano yeah. vita right? <laughs> if she if she wants to talk about that she's a keeper <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Uh, so so my wife and and I got confirmed on the same day. Oh wow! And received in the church on the same day, which was great because I think because it was such a, a life changing decision. Like it wasn't mm. just changing my my church on Sunday. Were you married my, at this stage? Yeah, we, we, I was married when we when we got confirmed. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you know that over half of Protestant ministers in the states who become Catholic lose their wives? Their wives divorce them. Oh, wow. wow. I found that out just wow. before I became Catholic, which
2: terrified me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm bit... glad we got confirmed together. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. Um, yeah, so so we were on the same page in terms of, uh, you know, walking into the church. And two of my kids, in fact, were baptized Catholic uh, even before we were confirmed. Wow. Wow. Um, I don't know if I should put that on the public <laughs> record. Actually, <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, uh, there, there
0: are plenty of people who do that, through especially people who've been in the school systems and.
2: Yeah, yep. well, I was in that sort of sort of tension where I knew I, I actually come to believe what the, the Catholic Church taught about baptism, and I didn't want to withhold it from my children, and, and I knew that I was mm-hmm. on a road at some point to being confirmed myself, but I didn't know when. <laughs> right. Fair enough. So I, I didn't make a big fuss about it, but yep. yeah. So, but for us coming in, you know. My mum was kind of interested in the, in the journey and, and still is and she's a good reader, right? So yep. she's read Benedict XVI and she's read a bit of Scott Hahn and a bit of Peter Kreeft and some church fathers and uh, she's been watching the Bishop Barron's uh, Catholicism series. And nice. Yeah, so she's Another quite link interested.
0: We'll put in the podcast notes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's excellent. It really is. Um, And great for someone who's coming to the church from a Protestant perspective because he explains things very well. So she was quite interested. Um, My wife's parents, not so much. Um, And I think over the years have come to realize that we're still Christians yeah
0: you just haven't grown horns <laughs> that's right you, you've not gone to another
2: country yeah, yeah yeah and there is a bit of that mentality that Catholics aren't Christians even right. amongst Catholics Catholics yep. think they're not Christians
0: sometimes and my father conceded before he died that I, I, I was probably going to heaven
2: so <laughs> <laughs> go on <Chris> good <laughs> <him. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, I mean obviously sat uncomfortably with my dad uh, mm. who had been a Protestant minister all his life um, is there a sense there I mean
0: the, the has to be a sense that you know, oh, my son's rejecting the faith that I grew up in, and it's kind yeah. of a. This is what I found from my, my colleagues who were Lutheran ministers. They they took it deeply personal, mm. and I get that yeah. because the questions I was asking weren't just about my authority as yeah, a minister. Exactly. It's about their, like, yeah, it's yeah. about the whole system which yep. they were a part of, yeah. whether or not that's valid, and so,
2: yeah, you, it's kind of scary. The implication of you leaving and becoming Catholic whether you say it explicitly or not, you imply that there's a lack of kind of um, authenticity or uh, validity, if you like, to the kind of ministry that they're involved in. Mm. And you recognize that they are being authentic to what they understand, Mm. but you've come to understand something else but what you've come to understand has implications for, yeah. <laughs> for how you think about yeah. that to the point where it requires you to leave it, right? So yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's tough space. And so I mm-hmm. think for my dad, it was difficult because so much of his identity is built around that, yeah. I'm a pastor.
0: Especially in such a small community of, uh, in the reform mm. movement. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think there's something that has been building in my mind, actually. We're talking about authority here and the way that it works with the whole system. Mm. Um, and I think it's incredibly courageous to encounter the truth knowing full well uh, that following it will ostracize you from a community. So, you know, Mm. props for that. (laughs) Uh, But coming in, I've also encountered Catholics who perhaps take uh, a reliance on authority a bit too far. Mm. I know one Catholic friend who... Uh, she she was really scandalized, and I mean that in the proper sense of the word, she struggled her, with her faith mm. when she realized that uh, the theology of the body by John Paul II wasn't infallible. Mm. And
0: now, when we say it wasn't infallible, we mean oh. it's not definitive mm. in the sense that everybody has to believe it in order to be saved. Yeah, mm. it's yeah. It, but I mean it's coming from it's authoritative mm. in the sense that it comes from the mm. Pope and it's one of the most thorough and complete. Uh, explorations of uh, the human person and our sexuality oh, yeah. Yeah. however it's, there's, there's still flaws with it and there's still mm-hmm. things to be worked out and there's still plenty of people working on it um, and that's a bit scary when you've discovered something yeah. that really you think gives life to oh suddenly mm. it makes my my life make more meaning and I, I can
1: understand my sexuality yeah. and then someone else comes along and goes well you know it's not infallible mm. and it's, I think it's, it's that interesting uh, it's that balance between personal agency and participation with the authority in the church that's Mm. given, of course, by something bigger than ourselves, someone bigger than ourselves. Mm. Um, Have you encountered much of that, I Mm. guess, in this? And how have you dealt with it? Because I know both of you have come in because of an understanding of authority. Mm. Mm. Well, what you see almost straight
2: away is that uh, (laughs) a very high percentage of Catholics uh, just Disregarded altogether. <laughs> yeah. So you come in, you go, oh, how about this amazing teaching on sexuality? And they're like, oh, f- well, that's ridiculous. Ninety <laughs> percent of the people are saying we, oh, yeah. we don't accept it. I'm like,
1: hang on, I've encountered that too.
2: Yeah. yeah so I, I mean, a, a big part of the challenge, I think, for Catholics is first of all, I'd say our authority, church authority, is a great strength. It's not a weakness. Mm. And authority, rightly understood, is beautiful and powerful. And it's something that the human condition needs um and what i mean by that is you know when jesus says uh you know to husbands love your wife as christ love the church mm. someone who has who who loves completely and gives themselves up for you is someone that you naturally tend to submit to right yes. so jesus loves the church in such a way he gives himself up uh mm. for the church mm. and so this authority is not an authority that's dominating and it's over the top and trying to make us live a difficult life. Mm-hmm. It's an authority of love that yeah. yep. that is calling us to not to submit in, in a kind of because it's dominant, mm-hmm. but to surrender to its love.
0: In fact, it, it, it's worth laboring that point a little bit more because Christ's, well, I mean, look at Christ's example. When we say love your wives, husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave his life mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. Now, not one breath, not one moment, not one ounce of his strength was spent on his own self. He mm. never once said to the church, "Get me a beer." Yeah, you know, he, he never demanded for himself. Everything he did was given up for the church, and he, it, he did it ask cost him a donkey. Him, <laughs> and he <did> a donkey, <laughs> just alone. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it, it, in everything he did, I mean, he wouldn't even make himself bread mm. in the wilderness, but he made five thousand other people bread. Yeah. 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 There's a kind of a um, a genuine selflessness. So if a husband's claiming authority to, to say, get me a beer woman, he's already beyond, He's mm. stepped outside mm. of anything that's mm. legitimate authority and he's gone into domination. in, mm. uh, so it's only ever authority, as you say, when it's totally given over for the good and yeah. the flourishing of the other person, which includes their free will. Mm. Mm. And so and it can never be this, against their free will.
2: Yeah. And it's in this context of love, right? And so if someone has authority over you and you know that they love you completely mm. that's actually not scary yeah. and it because you trust that person yeah. and when you trust that person it, it then when what comes out of their mouth even if you don't necessarily understand it you go okay well, I know that that person is good and loving. And mm. I'm, and in, in this case, with church authority, it's like Holy Spirit inspired. There's God speaking mm. through his church. Yeah. I can trust God. He's good. He's loving. He's gracious. He's abounding in love. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. Mm. He yeah. wants the best. Yeah. God wants the best for us, right? He speaks his truth through the church. That's right. So the church wants the best for its people. Mm. So what that means is when the church is then giving us something like Humano Vitae and, and people go into conniptions about it because it's it might not be convenient... We've got to start by saying, okay, God is telling us something through this and he loves Mm -hmm. us. And so let's listen. And mm-hmm. let's hear and let's understand. And, and I think for me, the thing that I would encourage for ca- for Catholics who struggle with church authority mm-hmm. is rather than see it as a, a list of things you should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I picked humana vita because it's like a controversial one, you know. And for those that don't know, it's the church's teaching around contraception. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But and it's one that people it's it's you know red herring for Catholics and it's very kind of polarized. But. Mm. Understand why the church teaches what it teaches, and yeah. understand it deeply, and you find it liberating. Mm, uh, and yeah. and for me, like the, the whole theology of the body, um, grounded in humano vitae, was just liberating. Like it yeah. was, it was life changing for me. It was like enlightening. Like it was like my brain had just gone into a yeah. new hemisphere uh, yeah. because it opened up the whole way to think about. Men and women, and family and children, in a way that yeah, it was just so life-giving. Yeah. Um, One
0: of the things I'd I just add to that is that we Westerners tend to think in very rigid categories. So mm-hmm. you either hundred percent on board with this, <laughs> or you're hundred percent reject it, or whatever. Mm. So, and we don't we don't seem to have the patience to have someone be challenged by a teaching. Mm. And be uncomfortable with it, and let them sit with that discomfort for some time, and work out where they and yeah. and and, yeah. and basically allow them to gradually uh, explore the idea, understand the implications, work it through, actually face what they're concerned about, rather than us trying to press and press and press yeah, and get yeah. them to point B as quickly as possible. Yeah. And to be honest, it's not such a big deal if they take, um, you know, years to get there. Mm. Provided they're acting with integrity and they're actually genuinely engaging with that with that that struggle and that journey, mm. it's some. I mean, I tend to come to things quickly because I'm an impatient person. I mm. go hard at the bullet the gate, but other people plod through the the normal, uh, you know, sort of process of working through. The, the idea in their head and that takes time. And, mm, and yeah. the six inches from head to heart is a long journey. Mm. And I, I mean, I intellectually understood the idea of um, asking saints to pray for us and Mary and all those sorts of things. But the six inches from my head to my heart was a long journey. Yeah, yeah. And it, t- it had to take time and, and a kind of. Learning by osmosis and and hanging around people who lived it, that was the key thing, hanging around people who lived it. You mentioned right at the start the problem with Catholics was partially at least their their lack of witness, Mm. the people you knew at least. Yeah, yeah. And when you come across Catholics who live it with joy Mm. without having to browbeat everyone else around them, that can make such a difference.
2: Yeah, they're intoxicating then. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I think coming back to your point about, you know, that, that tension of, you know, head to heart, For me, coming into the church, some of it was just, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to trust the church. (laughs) Because I'd gotten to the point of trusting the authority of the church. So there were some things I was like, I don't know about this, but I'm just going to trust the church here. (laughs) So (laughs) I was going to give this a run, right? And six years later, I can understand it now. Like it Mm. makes sense. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay.
1: Um, But, yeah, so sometimes you learn by actually giving Mm. it a run. Um, Yeah, I think going back to, to that comment I made, I mean, all this stuff about, you know, living it, yeah. Uh, it's it's one of those things that is beautiful in that we can trust in the teachings, but at the same time, we're free to challenge. Mm. Uh, to ask questions. And to ask yeah. questions. Our lady asked
0: the, ver- the yeah. very first doctrinal question when the angel said, this yeah. is what's going to happen. She goes, now, just hold on a second. <laughs> How is this going to happen? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not with any guys. Yeah, How yeah. am I going to have that's a baby? Right. Yeah. And th- then the angel explains it. She goes, okay, now, yeah. I commit my will to, you know, be done to me according to your words. Now, that's an excellent example because she didn't just go, whatever you say, God. Mm. It was she intelligently inquired when she had the answer. She then was able to commit herself because God doesn't want us to be autonomous or robots. Mm. He wants us to engage our will. And that means we have to actually intellectually seek out Mm. and understand with our hearts and our heads what we're committing to Mm. before we can really do it.
1: Yeah, and it's only because I mentioned the word agency before. I think Mm. that freedom and the capacity – to to choose and explore and, mm. and study yep. uh, helps us in our own way because we're all individuals. We're all, mm. you know, as, as I think it was Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict XVI said that, you know, there's many ways to heaven as there are the individuals only because we each encounter mm in the way that we do. And so
0: that was... the G.K. Chesterton quote? Was it, the church, is a, the church has a hundred doors and no two no two of them come from the same angle? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> it kind like of that. comes back to that, <laughs> that family um, illustration too. If you think about a father with many kids, in mm. your case, uh, Peter, mm-hmm. your relationship with your eight children is going to be different for Fair, each one. Everyone's You, you love yeah. them all and yeah. you care for them all, but how they perceive you...
0: And there are some rules which have to be the same because we've yeah, all got to yeah. be in the same house. Yeah. But they always tell me, "Oh, you've got a different rule for this guy. or You've yeah. got a different." Rule. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, I do. In fact, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you never <laughs> know which particular thing will uh, will will uh, be the catalyst mm. for a greater uh, journey of depth and encounter. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know.
0: well, we, we've got to come to a close reasonably soon. But so we need to ask the key question here. What can we do better as as a Catholic Church to receive people? Now, I, in some ways, I've almost—it's been a long time now since I became a Catholic, so I'm starting to feel a bit more like a cradle Catholic. I don't know what they feel like, but anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling more at home. Um, it's been, you know, nearly twenty years for me, but I still remember that first those first steps when I. It, I just didn't have a roadmap. Mm. I didn't know where to go or who to talk to or what. what how does this work because it was all alien to me. How do we get better at that? How do we get better at, at bringing people in and welcoming them and, and making it a, a, a homecoming?
1: Mm.
2: I think two things. One comes back to your point about authenticity and living the faith in its fullness. Mm. And when you come across Catholics that do that, we had a, a, a lady who is now the, the godmother of all five of my children um, who was just beautiful for that. She walked with us through RCIA. She taught us the rosary. Mm-hmm. She, us to mass, she told us about things like, this is why you genuflect when you walk in. <laughs> this is why you can't bring your coffee into Mass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, that's why. <laughs> you know, all, all of those kind of things. Uh, she walked with us and she accompanied with us and in a really authentic way. And so mm. her witness helped us in, a, in our journey in. Mm. I think that that journey in when you actually arrive and you, you're here in a parish, the thing that we can work on as Catholics is we have this great theology of communion, but it tends to be almost only vertical. <laughs> you know, It's <laughs> like when you come to mass, you're yeah. going to encounter Jesus. So you go out and you have the host and then you take off.
1: Everyone and, else disappears. And, and
0: it's so introspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm focusing in it. And yeah. I make this joke in my some of my classes. I say, if perhaps we looked a little less like we've just sucked a lemon. <laughs> <laughs> After taking yeah. communion, people might believe us that we've just feasted with the King of Kings.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the divine renovation people will say, you know, if Jesus is in your heart, notify your face. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you got joy in your heart, you know. Um, but, but this is the thing, like uh, parishes... Are these beautiful Eucharistic communities, right? Mm-hmm. And properly understood, should be drawing anyone and everyone in a in a beautiful and and kind of um what's the word in attractive way toward that Eucharistic centre. Yeah. And if you've got someone that's actually walked into the doors of your mass centre, they've come a long, long, long way yeah. from the outside in just to get that close to that yep. Eucharistic yeah. centre. And we need to make sure that anyone that walks onto our properties is loved, is cared for, that we're interested in mm. them. And, and that prob- we probably crash tackling them. them before they get to the Eucharistic <laughs> rail is not the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Asking them 30 questions, have you yeah. gone to confession? Yes, <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's it's just being, it's having a, a, a culture of love, of invitation, of mm-hmm. friendliness, of warmth and of excellence because there's nothing that says we're not doing something very important here than a building that looks like it hasn't been swept for five years yeah. uh, and music that looks looks like it hasn't been rehearsed ever. Mm. We've done a whole show on beauty and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's
0: exactly what we're talking yeah. about. beauty, effort, yeah. effort in the music, effort in the liturgy, yeah. effort to to demonstrate in, in worldly ways how majestic and wonderful yeah. uh, the, mm. the spiritual element of this is. All right, that's a fantastic way to end. So that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast advice, let us know. You can subscribe to our podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au or on that site you can find all of the links to the various podcast apps and subscriptions. So please check us out. You won't miss an episode. You can let us know what you liked or what you would like us to discuss in future by dropping us a line at info at or by Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or Discord chat. You'll find all of the links to those on our website. Be sure to let everyone know this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So
1: tell your friends. It's time for the shout outs. Ryan. I want to shout out to all those people, my classmates that uh, did study theology with me. I remember all those uh, late afternoons in discussion and friendly argumentation. Uh, yeah, shout out to you guys. I miss you guys. Cool. Peter, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to
2: all priests in Australia who in many ways are doing it tough at the moment, mm. uh, but are leading communities everywhere uh, and just say, guys, keep up, keep on. You're doing a great job. Uh, Keep loving people, keep loving God, we value you.
0: Mm. Mm. I'm going to go on a similar line and say all musicians in the church, they're Mm. usually underappreciated. Um, and it's probably the biggest thing people complain about when you get into a church. <laughs> I don't like the music. I'd rather it be this. I wish I want the Beatles' best hits or whatever they want. But basically, the musicians give their time voluntarily. Almost none of them have any pay. And even when they are, it's, it's not enough because mm. of the, the majestic tasks which they're, in particular, the, the musician from my parish, Stephen, with great gratitude for your efforts and for the choir who join you. So that's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.